Welcome to Wind Up Weekly. I'm Matthew Gone. And I'm Katie Canfield. And we're here to share the week's news and wine. This week on Wind Up Weekly. In coronavirus news, bars in California are now open, able to offer outdoor seating. In the US and UK, drinking trends morph. In other news, the challenges of the 2020 vintage in the Southern Hemisphere. Frost hits UK vineyards. On the horizon, pink prosecco. Rosé in fashion as Sarah Jessica Parker and Dolce and Gabbana launch new rosés. And as ever, our wine of the week. So it's been another virtual week in wine. It has indeed. I watched a couple of webinars hosted by Skernick, the US uh, importer of some very fine uh, French and German wine, and also South African wine as well. The portfolio is very impressive. And so on uh, Wednesday morning, I got up at 8.30 in the morning. To... That's early for Matthew. It's very early for Matthew, yes. And I watched um, a webinar with um, a German producer, uh, Schloss Lieser, with Thomas Haag and his daughter, Lara. And I met Lara a couple of years ago in Napa. She's very nice, and she's kind of the future of uh, Mosul, I think, the next generation. So really exciting to listen to her and her father talk about Riesling in the Mosul. Yeah, and I listened into some of that, and she seems to have a very global perspective. I think, you know, she uh, has traveled around the world and uh, worked, you know, harvests in different countries and different wine regions uh, because she, you know, she was the first to say that Mosul is a very small area uh, in the world. So it was important for her to kind of see what others were doing elsewhere. Yeah, we're a little envious of her because she's only 26, and yet she's clearly a been around the world, made wine in different places, and is going to be making outstanding wine in the Mosul. And I was also a little sad because I was supposed to visit uh, Thomas and Laura Haag in um, March, but obviously wasn't able to, so we have to do it virtually instead. And then on Thursday, uh, we or I watched uh, Chris and Andrea Mullineux, South African producers in the Svartland. Really, really exciting. Interesting to hear them talk about the Svartland and the different soil types and the wines that they're making. And they only started making wine just over 10 years ago but they've already established themselves as one of the leading lights of the Svartland, which is such an exciting region. And we actually visited Molnir, didn't we? But we didn't didn't meet them, unfortunately. No, but their wines are fantastic, and hopefully one day we'll get back to South Africa and pay them a visit. Um, So likewise, uh, my week in wine was online. Uh, We hosted a webinar for Paul Draper with California Wine Institute. So it was Elaine Chacon Brown uh, with Paul Draper uh, for a very memorable um, conversation. It was about one hour. uh, That wasn't near enough time. Uh, Paul's got quite a history. And it was really interesting hearing him talk, you know, about the 30s like it was yesterday. Um, So hopefully there will be another opportunity to continue that conversation in a future webinar. Um, But you can access it if you missed it. Um, It's on the California Wine Institute YouTube channel. So if you just, you know, search California Wine Institute on YouTube, I'm sure you'll find it. Um, And then he and Lane tasted the 1984 Montebello, uh, which sounded like a lot of fun and just So it's just been really interesting through this webinar series, seeing the pioneers of California wine, uh, some older, some younger, and how they're kind of changing the face of California and the wines that they produce. His perspective goes all the way basically back to the um, repeal of prohibition. So he really has an overview of the California wine industry as it has evolved since Prohibition. It's absolutely fascinating to mm. listen to him. He's 84, but he doesn't look it. Doesn't talk like it either. No, well, well apart from all the history. <laughs> but he's definitely, <laughs> uh, he's definitely on point in everything he says. 
But what I also found interesting was his take on Chile, because I didn't really know his story in Chile. He worked there for a couple of years, and that's where he learned winemaking before he joined Ridge. And just him, hearing him talk about Chile in the 1960s was fascinating, and how little has changed since then in some respects. Yeah, working with old vines there. Um, and also, you know, some of the challenges, like for the type of oak that they use, for example, you know, really difficult to find uh, high-quality oak barrels. Yes, a little anecdote he shared was that he had a difficult time, you know, finding the high quality oak. So he had to, for his barrels. So he actually did locate some in the flooring. Uh, so he ripped up some oak wood flooring and crafted some barrels out of it so that he could age his wine in some high quality stuff. Innovative winemaker who's completely self-taught as well and self-trained. Um, what, what a story he has. And now on with the news. <laughs> The first update on the state of affairs with coronavirus. It's Memorial Day weekend here in the USA and in California, to coincide with the holiday, bars and restaurants have partially reopened with outdoor seating, allowed as long as customers can continue to practice their social distancing. So we're not sure how many bars and restaurants are going to take full advantage of the reopening this weekend, as it takes some logistics to set the seating up properly and to rehire the right number of staff. But they're definitely gearing up for reopening uh, over the next week. So it's going to be interesting to see how many people return to bars and restaurants and indeed how many bars and restaurants deem it economically worthwhile to reopen, only partially. Finnegan, our dog, and I went for a walk yesterday just to see uh, what had opened and how people were taking advantage of the opening. And it's kind of like half and half. Some hadn't reopened yet, and I was looking at um, different bars and um, breweries on the internet as well who were kind of gearing up to reopening but hadn't actually done so this weekend and just were continuing with curbside pickup. There's one bar in Petaluma called Taps which was open, and it was quite busy but not overly so. So I think we're going to see, it's kind of felt quite normal to see people eating and drinking outside again. And so hopefully that will continue, but people will behave sensibly. Yeah, I thought it was interesting that they chose this weekend, a holiday weekend, one known for people gathering and celebrating, drinking, um, to open doors of bars and restaurants. You know, it didn't seem like a very tactful move since people are already you know chomping at the bit to celebrate get together you would think they would choose a more calm nondescript date to start uh, opening up doors i think that's why quite a few bars and restaurants didn't bother reopening they didn't feel as worth the hassle so but it's in stark contrast to my sister who's in turkey because she there's a holiday there as well this weekend and she can't leave the house at all everything is shut down even the Uh, grocery stores and supermarkets Hmm. well we'll see the results and who is taking the correct strategy so switching gears a little bit to look at some drinking trends um of course they've changed hugely over the last two to three months with more people buying online and drinking at home and some of these trends such as buying online were already happening but have been greatly accelerated Market researcher Nielsen has been tracking drinking habits in the UK and the US and found some interesting developments. So for example, sales of non-alcoholic beer up 44% in the US compared to this time last year. So continuing that trend for non-low alcohol drinks, but really accelerated. Many purchases are for the long term, uh, sales of 24 packs of beer up by 35% and of 30 packs by 36%. People stocking up on their beer Online sales in the U.S. are up by a staggering 339%. 
which has led to online retailers increasing their marketing costs by 208%, in contrast to uh, on-sales retailers who are cutting down on their marketing. Yes, it's hard to ramp up your marketing when your doors are closed. And then hard seltzers, uh, lo and behold, are up by 334% in the US, with White Claw to be launched in the UK next month. Lucky UK. The question is, of course, what happens next? And so Wine Intelligence have created four categories of wine consumers, which they expect to emerge as lockdown eases. There are the halters, which is 18% of regular drinkers in the UK, ceasing social and lifestyle activities, typically drinkers who are higher spenders on wine. Reducers, and these account for 10% of regular drinkers, significantly curtailing their social and lifestyle activities. And these are typically drinkers who are less wine engaged, but used to enjoy it socially. Then they're the moderators, 56% of regular drinkers who won't change their lifestyles that much, frequent wine drinkers who go to pubs and restaurants. And finally, there's the hedonists, 16% of regular drinkers of wine who anticipate increasing social and lifestyle activities. And these are often millennials who drink wine regularly and like to socialize. So which of these categories do you fall into, Katie? Well, I think that's a hard call. It certainly depends on how this uh, the reopening kind of rolls out in our uh, local area. I definitely don't want to add to the problem, so I think I'll, I'll be taking my time and sort of re-emerging and carrying on with regular activities. But then we live in a wine-loving and drinks-loving household, so... We'd have continued, you know, in our retail, obviously, purchase it in our retail purchases, obviously, but um, any opportunity we can to support the on trade will be welcome. But maybe that's through takeout and, and maybe that continues through curbside and takeout. Uh, if the TTB hangs on, uh, allowing those uh, alcohol allowances to restaurants so that they can, you know, sell wine and cocktails uh, for pickup and delivery. I thought I'd be a hedonist, that I'd be straight in the bar as soon as they reopened. But even though they opened yesterday, we didn't actually go. So maybe I'm a moderator. The pod reported on the 2020 vintage in the Southern Hemisphere a couple of weeks ago. Earlier than usual, low yields and high quality, tempered by the fact getting the grapes into the winery was made difficult due to the coronavirus. Further news on the vintage from both Chile and Argentina. Wines of Argentina called the vintage incredibly challenging, adding that nothing about the 2019 to 2020 season has been usual. As in other Southern Hemisphere countries, it was a warm vintage, leading to the incredibly early harvest, perhaps the hottest in 50 years, with between five and seven heat waves recording in most regions, and harvest between two to four weeks earlier than usual. Meanwhile, there was a period of drought as snowfall in Mendoza was at its lowest level in the last 20 years, which meant that rivers only had 50% of their usual capacity. Rainfall was also 50% of its usual rate. Hail also was an issue, completely damaging 7,000 hectares of vines in Mendoza. And all that came after spring frost had destroyed nearly 2,500 hectares in Mendoza. And yet despite all those issues, which of course included having to navigate the coronavirus, the harvest is considered exceptional, marked by very fresh acidity, perhaps because the combination of water stress and heat led to low yields and a quicker growing season to preserve acidity, Even so, producers are still trying to work out how such a difficult vintage produced some quality wines. 
Likewise in Chile, where the VSPT wine group, which encompasses several wineries in the country, declared that their overall yields were 20 to 25% lower than in 2019, particularly down for black grape varieties. The weather patterns and issues were similar to Argentina's, spring frost, hot summer, a lack of water, and an early harvest, and yet an outstanding vintage. The UK's wine industry has grown hugely in the last 10 years, helped to some degree by climate change, which allows more favourable growing conditions. It's still not easy though, with last week seeing some of the latest frost ever experienced, as temperatures range from just below freezing to, to minus 5.5 degrees C, and producers had to work around the clock to minimise damage. Some producers escaped unscathed, for example Rath Finney, whose vineyard is just 5 kilometres from the sea, Proximity to water often prevents frost damage, so they were in a good position. However, others were much worse hit. Breaky Bottom, an amusingly named winery, in East Sussex, recorded the first frost damage on their property since the first plantings back in 1974, with between 90 and 100% damage. Across England, from North Yorkshire to Cornwall, 61 producers reported between 50 and 100% damage, although another 72 reported less than 10%. To fight the frost, Torches, burners and fans were used to stop the frost settling. What is the history of uh, frost and the effect on, on past vintages? Well, you often see um, around March and April, um, a little bit earlier than the um, experience here, pictures on Instagram of English wineries with their, their burners. And mm-hmm. it's like um, a bit, it's almost like a huge bonfire in the vineyards. And it's not very environmentally friendly, but it does stop the frost from settling. And that's what they were doing um, this week. I think because it was so late, they might not have been prepared for it. And also the vines are much more developed than they would be in March and April. So more of a a damaging effect for the frost because it's so late. Well, a real double whammy for the UK wine industry, um, particularly for those producers who rely on restaurant sales. So, I mean, coronavirus and frost, it's going to be incredible to see how they overcome these hardships. The rise of Prosecco is set to continue, as official permission was granted to producers to make rosé Prosecco, which could boost sales by up to 75 million bottles a year, an important boost during the current crisis. The new regulations stipulate that the base must be glera, blended with 10-15% to Pinot Nero. The only two permitted styles are Brut Nature and Extra Dry and the wine must spend 60 days in a pressurized tank during the second fermentation to stabilize the color. One producer, Bosco Viticoltori, hopes to release their first pink Prosecco in January and plans to make it a pale pink Provencal style to emphasize its light, fresh style, which is a central part of the appeal of Prosecco. So this is an apt time for the Prosecco industry to expand, seeing as people are drinking sparkling wines, but you've seen a fall off on champagne sales, for example. So people are watching their pennies a little more and perhaps not spending uh, that, those real luxury prices. So Prosecco really fits the price point there. Yeah, and like champagne, Prosecco has um, suffered during this downturn because uh, people drink Prosecco in bars and restaurants. But Prosecco will definitely have an advantage over Champagne uh, because of its lower price point. And introducing a rosé category seems a very obvious move, uh, building on the popularity of Prosecco in general, but also sparkling rosé wine as well. And so I think this will be very successful.
Continuing the rosé theme, we have news of the launch of two high-profile rosé brands. Actor Sarah Jessica Parker has added a new wine to her Marlborough Sauvignon Blanc, a rosé from the south of France. It's made with the same New Zealand partners she has worked with for the Sauvignon Blanc, in vivo, in, cl- in collaboration with Provence producer Chevron Villette, and Parker took part in the final blending for the wine, which she's very excited about. Retailing at $20 here in the US, the rosé is a blend of Grenache, Sanso and Syrah. Meanwhile, in Italy, Dolce and Gabbana have teamed up with Sicily producer Dana Fugata to make a rosé. Naturally, the style is Provençal, a word we've heard a lot in this pod, building on the global trend for rosé, which continues to grow even during lockdown. The label is a brightly patterned red, white, blue, and pink, inspired apparently by traditional Sicilian carts. The grapes are Nerello Mascalese and Nocera, grown on the northern slope of Mount Etna and the hills of Contessa Etolina near Palermo. The wine will be on sale on Dolce and Gabbana's website at the end of the month. Well, you can tell um, we're entering the summer months because the news is um, all about rosé and these different brands being launched, so we have pink Prosecco, and then we have Sarah Jessica Parker jumping on the bandwagon, and then um, Dolce Gabbana also, and teaming up with a really good producer as well, so their rosé could be actually quite interesting. Well, as long as it's Provencal style, I'm on board. It's always fun discovering a producer we've never heard of before, especially when it's a champagne producer, and this is what we've chosen as our wine of the week. The producer is called Champagne Le Large Pugiot, and the wine is called Les Muniers de Clamence. So the Lalage family have been living in the Premier Cru village of Vrigny for over 200 years, first making wine in the 1930s. And it's a winery that's undergone quite a lot of change in the last 20 years. In 1983, third-generation winemaker Dominique Lalage went to university in Beaune to study viticulture and oenology, where he met his wife, also called Dominique. I wonder if that was the immediate attraction, having the same name. And she's the Pugio of the large Pugio name. Together, they've moved from using pesticides and incesticides at the turn of the century to becoming fully bio- biodynamic in 2017. A respect for the land we fully support. Yes, yeah, so the grape variety for this wine is Mounier, the third of the Champagne grapes, and one that gets the least credit. It's generally used for blending to add freshness and fruitiness, but there are plenty of producers, Krug not least of them, who believe it's capable of long aging. This wine, Le Mounier de Clemence, Clemence being their daughter, who's now getting involved in the winemaking, has been aged for more than five years, giving it a lees texture to complement the dry, lean, acidic mouthfeel. And the dosage is just three grams per liter. And how do we know all this information about the family and the wine, even though we never heard of them 24 hours ago? Well, it seems they're very good communicators. The harvest, bottling, and disgorgement dates are all on the label. And most unusually for a French producer, the website is excellent and presents a lot of useful and clear information. Other producers could learn a lot from them. Yes, we'll have to share the link in uh, the description for the pod so you all can check it out and uh, maybe they even list where their wines are sold, but that might be a stretch. I think that's a stretch. Anyway, the price point on the wine was... Well, it's $65, so mm-hmm. it's quite expensive, kind of in that champagne range. And I just took a punt on it because I wanted to try um, a new grower... Uh, producer that I hadn't uh, experienced before, and it's well worth it. 
Yes, and it was appropriate as well. Um, it is Sunday today as we record the pod, and our friend Dan Petrosky, um, winemaker at Massacan and also at Larkmead Winery in Napa Valley, uh, he uh, proposed the sip champagne hashtag for Instagram um, for today, Sunday, so that everyone, you know, open a, open a bottle of champagne and support those producers because we know that their sales have, have hurt a lot in the recent weeks. So here's our support to them. Absolutely. We may have um, some more champagne later. Who knows? Cheers to that. So that's it for Wind Up Weekly this week. I'm Katie Canfield. I'm Matthew Gorn. Join us next week for another Wind Up. And in the meantime, we ask that you please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. Uh, That helps other listeners searching for the news in wine to find us. Especially if the reviews are positive. That's right. See you next week. Cheerio!